about last week that God has given each of us a gift that we should share with other people. We also have a story that we can share with other people. And here today at the end of our time, we're going to share a story about a guy who uh, was under one of our missionary partners and God has completely transformed his life. And I'll share his story here today. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in Luke 19. And we're going to go through this passage that Mark just read for us. And I think that this story, the story of Zacchaeus, is one that is so foundational. And it's also very unnatural, I would say, for us to really comprehend what Jesus is saying here. When he says in Luke uh, 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, it is difficult to overstate the, the significance of this moment. I mean, there are a lot of words that people would use to describe Zacchaeus, but lost would not be at the top of that list. I mean, we're talking about the commissioner of the tax collectors. So he's not just a tax collector who is uh, the traitor of traitors to the culture. He is the commissioner of the tax collectors. So he's the top of the pyramid and everybody's cheating. Everybody's oppression of the Jewish people goes straight to him. I mean, I think a lot of times we think of this story of Zacchaeus, and it's like this little like kid's story, right? Isn't it a cute story? This little guy climbs up a tree and just to get a glimpse of Jesus. But we're talking about a guy here who has a ton of authority and power, and he's really using that authority and power in the most disgraceful way. I mean, he's using his power to actually harm his people, right? So to describe him as lost, it's like, Jesus, come on disgraceful maybe how about scum of the earth maybe right but he says lost he says lost and here's why I think this is so foundational for us maybe God doesn't think about people the way we think about people see we spend a lot of time dividing people into the good and bad category but the reality is none of us are good right I mean, it would be an exercise in futility to make a column of good and bad people, right? Because once you put Jesus in the good column, that's all you got. That's it, right? Even after we come to know Jesus, it is his righteousness that's been imputed into us, not us ever becoming good in the first place. And so maybe we ought to look at people a little bit differently. Instead of good and bad categories... Because again, we're all bad, right? We all have wickedness in our heart. Maybe we ought to look at lost and found instead. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says this, and, and this is referencing back to the Psalms. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's tough, but important. It's a a tough but important pill to swallow here this morning. But if there is no one righteous except for Jesus, then perhaps we've got to fundamentally shift how we view people. So if we think about lost and found instead of bad and good, think about how that fundamentally shifts how you look at people. 
right? Because here's the thing, you don't get mad at lost things, right? You don't get angry, you don't scoff at lost things. You don't get disgusted by lost things. In fact, what you do with lost things is you earnestly go and pursue and try to find lost things. Or in this case, we earnestly desire for God to be the one to go pursue people and find them. Man, found people have compassion on lost people because we know what it is to be lost. We know what it is to be lost. You know, Jesus tells us a lot about his character with just those two words. He came to seek and to save the lost. It's so foundational. And so what that implies is there are people who are lost and there are people who are perishing. It's those two groups of people. In fact, when you read the prodigal son story, uh, Luke 15, 24, it says this. It says, they had to celebrate for this son of mine. Here it is was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Y'all, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He, he came to make dead people alive. He came to make lost people be found in the kingdom of God. And we've got to remember, found people have no self-righteousness. When you've been rescued... It's not because we merited that rescue, right? We're helpless. We're desperate. And yet God has come and he has saved us. Uh, when I was 16, this is an embarrassing but I think important story to share with you guys. Uh, when I was 16, I had my license for about a week. And this is about 18 years ago. And the Garmin GPSs, you remember these? That were like, I don't even know how much money they were, but they were a lot of money, right? And I was getting paid six twenty-five an hour. I couldn't afford one of those uh, GPSs. So my two options were print out the MapQuest directions. You guys ever do this? Print out those MapQuest directions, take them with you, and try to hold, you know, hold the steering wheel and look at the directions at the same time. Or you just hope that you know exactly where you're going and how to get back. Those are your two options. So one day, I go to a friend's house, and it's the second time I've been there. It's about 15 minutes from my house. And I said, okay, last time I got there and back, and everything was fine. So I don't think I need to print out the directions. I'll just go again, and, and I'll try to remember like where I'm going, stuff like that. So when I come back, I'll make sure to not make any wrong turns, right? Well, that was about 6 in the afternoon, and I came back home at 11, and it was dark. So sure enough, I take a wrong turn, and about 10 minutes goes by, and I realize I don't know anything around me. So at that time, I did have a cell phone. I called my friend, and I said, hey, man, I'm at this road and this road. Can you tell me where to go? And he says, oh, dude, I have no idea where you are. <laughs> and he said something like, but let me know how it works out, man. <laughs> like, great. Good, good friend, thanks, right? So then I call my parents, and my mom says, all right, she looks up online, she says, okay, here's where you are, you need to get to this next road, to this next road, to this next road, and then call me again. So sure enough, we hang up, and I get to that place, and I go to call again, and my phone died. <laughs> so now I'm just... 
And, and I didn't know this, but I was like towards Knoxville. So I'm living in Jefferson City, and Knoxville is about 35 minutes away. And I'm like close to Knoxville, and I had no idea. That's how far off I had gone. And by this point, it's, again, I leave about 11. It's probably 1 a.m. at this point, and I'm getting desperate. So I pull into somebody's driveway, and they've got, I said, you know, they got their light on. I'm sure probably they wouldn't mind if I came and just asked for directions. Well, before I could even get to the door to knock, a guy comes out with a shotgun, (laughs) says some words I can't say on stage, and so I never asked him, which at the time I thought, man, this guy's really mean. But now that I have kids, I'm like, that guy was not as crazy as I thought. <laughs> so I just turn around. I can't even get, man, I can't even get directions. And so I turn around, I go back out of there, and I'm just driving. And finally, the reality hits me, probably about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. I am completely lost. I don't know what to do next. So I pull up to a stop sign, I just put it in park, I put my head on the steering wheel, and I just start crying. I'm like, I, I mean, what do I do at this point, right? Nobody knows how to find me. What, what do I do? I don't know. Stay the night here, it sounds like. I might as well just get comfortable, go to sleep, try to figure this thing out in the morning, right? Well, a few minutes later, about 20 minutes later, this lady comes up behind me, and I just kind of wave her around, like, hey, just go around me, I'm just chilling here, you know, and uh, she comes up beside me, and she says, do you need help, and I said, well, now that you mention it, yeah, I could use some help, but I didn't want her to have to take the time to, like, lead me all the way back, you know, into civilization or whatever, and she, she said, uh, she said, well, can I call somebody for you, and I said, yeah, call my parents, call my parents, and um, about an hour later, because that's how far <laughs> away I was, about an hour later, my parents came and met me and had the MapQuest directions, and we got back home. I think I got home what should have been a 15-minute trip at 11.15. I think it was about 4 a.m. that we finally got home. Now, I share that story because there was really no self-righteousness in me for being rescued that night. I mean, I had my way, did not get it done. I went off course. And so when I was rescued, man, I didn't look at people who weren't rescued and been like, ha ha, I'm found, you're not, right? In fact, the evidence came a couple weeks later. A friend of mine, he got his car stuck in a ditch, and he said, Dallas, can you come help me? And I was like, yeah, I'll come help you. I I know what this is like, right? I had a similar situation. I said, let me get a chain, let me get a truck, I'll, I'll go borrow one, and I will pull you out of there right? And this is the mentality for us. I think we need to fundamentally shift how we think about people, that they're lost and found, dead or alive. These are the categories that Jesus left here for us. I think if we do that, then we can have compassion over the world. We can have compassion on people. How often in Jesus's ministry does it say he sees a need, he's filled with compassion And then he acts. He's filled with compassion. And then he acts. And yes, we should, once people are found, hold them accountable to the ways of Jesus. But not while they're lost. Jesus wants to save the lost and he rejoices. He rejoices over it. The question I have for us is, do we rejoice when he saves? Do we rejoice when he saves? 
And I don't mean just like with the people that we like. But how about our enemies? How about in this moment when Jesus seeks and saves Zacchaeus? Now that is profound. I think the reason that he actually has Zacchaeus be named here is to create the ultimate juxtaposition, right? I mean, we're talking about the chief tax collector, the one that everybody in the culture would say, no, not that one, Jesus. And yet he names him here and he says, this is now a son of Abraham. Man, would we rejoice over that? Or would we mutter? Or would we grumble? And I don't think we really fully grasp the weight of what Zacchaeus has done. When he says he's going to pay back four times the amount, that is an Old Testament requirement for something that is just very brutal in nature. If you have committed a violent crime, a brutal crime, then what you would do is pay back four times the amount. So if you killed somebody's sheep, you would then owe them four sheep. And so what Zacchaeus is saying here is, I know that I have the ultimate shortcomings here. I've blown it. In this moment, he realizes that his offenses are at the highest degree. And so what he does is he repents and he believes that God's way is better than his way. And we know that. Why? Because the evidence is found by what he does. Genuine repentance comes with evidence. And it wasn't the act of giving that four times back it, that saved him. It was the evidence that he repented and believed. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says this. It says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So catch that connection here. So if Jesus seeks and saves, our job is to repent and believe. That's so important. If he seeks and saved, we repent and believe. That is coming into the kingdom of God. So he seeks after us, and repentance is saying, okay, I realize, I recognize that I'm lost, that my way hasn't gotten it done, and I've got to turn towards him. And the cool thing about it is Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. So if the kingdom is, is near, the king is near too. So we turn from where we are and we go towards him. This is repentance. So he seeks after us and we turn towards him. And then he saves and we believe. We believe that we were perishing. We believe that we were left for dead. And yet now we have life and salvation through him. So catch that connection. He seeks and saves, and we repent and believe. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Self-righteousness is therefore nullified. Self-righteousness is nullified. It is to be eliminated from our lives. And I think that it says that the people muttered because it shows us what our response is when we are self-righteous. That we will grumble that we will mutter, that we will be frustrated when God saves if our heart is set on self-righteousness. But if our heart is set on humility of saying, God, I am the worst of sinners. I mean, I really recognize that I've blown it so much. And so I humbly just say, yes, God. I mean, yes, I, I can't get it done. You are the one who is getting it done. And I submit my life to you. And that's the difference. That's why the Pharisees mutter, because they felt like they had position over people. They were really doing something. 
And so they made these categories about bad and good. And what Jesus is saying here is that when you make those categories of bad and good, guess what category you'll be in, right? So I think that's why Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged. Because if we're judging by a standard of bad and good, then we must also judge ourselves in that same standard. Because no one is good, no, not one, except for Christ and His righteousness. And so that's why things like cancel culture really bother me. I mean, now, right now in our culture, we are trying to cancel out generations of the past because of some sort of morality that we have that we feel like previous generations didn't have. And so what we're doing is we're ensuring that future generations cancel us out because we're creating a standard that we will be eliminated by one day, right? And so that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, do not judge or you will be judged. If you're setting that standard, then you will also be judged by that standard. And I think sometimes we'll just say, man, if I can just pass this off on somebody else, if I can just say, they're the problem, then I've now absolved myself of any responsibility in the matter. And i got to say, I, I mean, I think if someone thinks that he is good, I'm not so sure that that person has been found. And that's foundational in this story. And I would much rather be found than good any day. How will God save us if we don't think that we are lost? How will God impute His righteousness into our lives if we think we've got an ounce of righteousness ourselves? That is why this story in Luke 19 is so foundationally important. As for Zacchaeus, he repented and he believed. He knew that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and he was at the bottom of that list until that day when he saw Jesus. And for him... It was more than just a decision. You know, I think sometimes we, we settle for that in our Christian culture today. We settle for a decision. But really what he had was a conviction to turn away from this life that he has lived into a whole new direction in the way of Jesus. And I think for us, sometimes we settle for a decision. So it's things like um, anything else in our life. Like we'll say a non-fictional character like George Washington, for instance, right? We'll say, if you believe that George Washington was the first president, you believe that he helped us gain independence over Britain, then you can be in the group. And I think that's what we do a lot of times as Christians, don't we? We say, just make the decision, just accept this truth, and then you can be in the club. But what it is, it's a conviction, the repentance that he had here, this was not just a decision. This was a, a, an entire, a, entirely different way of going about his life. And I think for us, we've got to realize that repentance is more than a decision. It is a conviction. Because that's how it works in the kingdom of God. That we acknowledge that we've wandered off, that we've gotten ourselves lost, and because of that, we are perishing but yet Jesus delights in seeking and saving the lost. Some of you 
here may have never done that before. Maybe you've been in church 20, 30 years and never done that before. I just heard a story about a lady who, she played the, uh, the piano at her church. They had like a traditional, you know, more conservative style of church. And she played the, the organ is what it was, in fact. And she was there for like 35 years and the pastor gave the invitation and all of a sudden, one day, she came down and she was saved for the first time. They thought this whole time she had been saved, but she realized that she wasn't. And that happens. Sometimes we think, man, we've latched on to a decision or a culture or a way of doing things, but yet there's never really been a conviction and a heart change. And if that's you this morning, man, today's a great day to have conviction and a repentance to believe that His way is the best way. As I told you, we, um, we have a ministry called Recovery Soldiers. And what they do is they uh, help people get off drugs. It's a residential program. It's a year-long program. And, man, they talk about Jesus all the time. It is awesome. I went over there and toured the facility. And Josh, the guy who kind of heads it up, he, we'd run into somebody and he'd say, Hey, man, tell Dallas your story real quick. And they just profound stories. You know, I was on meth for 12 years or, I, you know, whatever, but I've found Jesus. And I wanted to share one of those stories here with you this morning. This guy's name is Jonathan. He says, my name is Jonathan, and my darkness started very early. When I was 9 or 10, my dad gave me something, but it wasn't a ball glove or a bicycle. It was a pain pill. Now, he wasn't a bad dad or even a bad man. I loved my dad. He was my world. I wanted to be just like him. That was the problem. So with that came growing up in the drug house, or some people might call it a trap house. Now we call it the world, but I just called it home. So growing up in that came drugs. And with drugs comes money, women, popularity. And I was addicted to being popular just as much as I was the drugs. I liked being able to control people. And in, in that life, when you have the money and drugs, you can control whoever you want. So time goes on, and just a bunch more darkness and drugs are in my life. And Satan is just giving me everything I want so that he can use it to destroy me later. I met a girl and fell in love, and she gets pregnant. Just to give you an idea of where I was in the world, I was not ready for a kid, and I knew it. The baby was a son, and he didn't make it. He dies, and everyone is telling me how sorry they are. But I wasn't upset. I was relieved. I didn't have to worry about buying diapers. I could buy dope. That's how awful I was and how tight a grip Satan had on me. So more time passes and I start to get tired of living this way. You know, I took pills and did dope to have fun and get high. That was all fun and good for a season, but eventually I got to where I had to take pills and do dope just to get back to normal. For my body to function or just to be able to get out of bed, I had to do drugs first. And no one wants to live like that. They just don't know any other way to live yet. So she gets pregnant again with my daughter, and I decide I'm going to change. So I come up with all the worldly solutions. I move out of the drug house, get an apartment, and get myself a job. And I'm fixing everything on the outside. And I'm not doing a thing for the inside. And that never works, I promise. I also get on something called Suboxone. Suboxone is a drug that uh, they give you to get off drugs, which makes no sense. I will say this about Suboxone, even if you are the 1% of people that can take it the right way, it's still not true freedom. I don't have to have anything anymore. 
I don't drink coffee anymore. Now I lost some of you guys on that one, right? (laughs) So with all this, I'm just an awful person. I put my poor mama through hell. I neglected my kid and her mother, and I do not care uh, about anything but me. That's what addiction has to offer you. I finally end up in jail and drug and assault charges, and my preacher walks into the jail cell and asks me if I was tired. I said, yes, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. He told me he knew about this place called RSM that was changing people's lives. I said, let's do it. I came up here, and within two days of being here, I was saved and baptized, and I started to fix things on the inside this time. Ever since then, God has been blessing me. Not only is my four-year-old daughter waiting on her daddy, but God has also blessed me with another beautiful baby girl. My mama has never been more proud of her son. My kid's mother has gotten saved and gave her life to the Lord as well because she saw how good God is working in my life. God has shown me my calling in life, which is to teach God's word and help drug addicts who are just like I was. Luke chapter 2 says... I must be about my father's business, and that's what I'm going to do. Whatever God wants me to do, because he saved my life. I should be in hell with my back broke right now, but I'm not because of his grace and mercy. I give him all the honor, glory, and praise for it all. I thank Jesus every day, and I thank RSM for introducing me to him. Y'all... God delights in saving. Maybe we should too. God delights in saving Zacchaeus and Jonathan. And that is our father's business. It reminds me when we were at the beach one time and uh, Morgan and I look up and one of our girls was out of sight. And it, it was only like 30 seconds. But it felt like a lot longer than that. And man, there was this like frantic Where is she? Running and going. And man, when we finally chased her down, I didn't even care that she had wandered off. I was just so happy that she was back with us. Y'all, our Father delights in passionately pursuing those who are lost and saving them. So, as we close out this series, let's be about our Father's business. And coming alongside of him and being a part of seeing him seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the series. We thank you for how you've worked. We thank you for your goodness and your power and your authority. We thank you that you don't just pass people off. It's not good enough. That it's your righteousness anyway. That you, you want every single one of yours to come home. Father, help us to be a people that just lean in more and more to your will in our lives and and in the lives of the people around us as well. Father, help give us your eyes. Man, we need your eyes as we go from here. Help us to see people the way that you see them. Help us to see people as lost and, and not just pass people off, man, because here's the thing. Zacchaeus is now a son of Abraham. Jonathan is now teaching your word. 
God, we put so many limitations, and I pray that you'll break those limitations this morning on what you can do. Because you are our Father, and you can do anything. We love you a lot. In Jesus' name, amen. The altars are open. If you need somebody to pray with, I'll be here as well. Let's worship.